We're going to start with prayer this morning. We pray for Gary Carroll had a massive heart attack yesterday and um, had a stent put in late afternoon, early evening, and is um, in recovery and is going to have some more procedures here pretty soon. But the Lord was gracious and merciful in uh, sustaining Gary. We want to continue to pray for continued uh, recovery. We want to pray for another church nearby, not quite in town. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, this morning, before we uh, pray for some specifics having to do with this, po- this people and this body, I want to pray for another church uh, west of us. I want to pray for Lake Point. Uh, just thankful for the decades-old ministry that Lake Point has provided to Rockwall and surrounding areas, and even folks in Greenville drive as far uh, as far as Greenville, probably further, to be part of Lake Point. Um, God, we are thankful for uh, sustained ministry. We give you the glory for sustaining that ministry as long as you have. Lord, I want to pray for, for their leadership this morning. I want to pray for Steve Stroop. Um, I want to pray for Lance Shoemake and other elders and other leadership of the church. God, I want to pray that you would um, give them wisdom as they work through um, the future, whatever the future looks like for Lake Point if they continue to grow numerically, if they sustain their growth, if they get smaller. Lord, I pray that they are able to put all of those possibilities in your hands and leave those and trust those issues to you. And Lord, I pray that Steve and the other leadership would be first and foremost faithful to what you have called them to be as the church. Lord, I pray that uh, if that results in um, having smaller campuses or having less uh, impressive facilities or smaller staff or whatever might be in store, Lord, I pray that they will be responsive and attentive. God, I do pray for Lake Point for a mindset of kingdom advancement over dynasty growth. And Lord, as I am very thankful for their ministry, I recognize the potential to want to be bigger and add more people to your roles and not knowing motives, not knowing even the people involved. I just pray for this church. I pray that you would guard them as I suspect I might be tempted uh, as we saw growth like that. I pray that you would guard them from counting those things as success, but that success would be measured through the lens of your word. I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have as a church to spend a month just asking and answering a question, what is church supposed to be? What are the markers of health? I'm thankful for this time that we have this month and thankful that we have your word. We don't have to just share some lame opinions or some uh, statistical measurements. We don't have to be influenced by those things. We can be shaped and guided completely and solely by your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he guides us into all truth. Lord, I pray that these next few minutes will be spent that way as we consider leadership, uh, the part of the church, the uh, characteristic of the church being led and leadable. Lord, before we move into our message this morning, what you have for us, we want to thank you for sustaining our brother Gary over the afternoon and evening Lord, we lift him up to you. We entrust him to you. We ask you to watch over his body, his heart, his recovery. Protect him from clots or anything that could be a complication, Lord. We ask this of you 
so that Gary will be restored to ministry. Many people find their seat from week to week because a guy like Gary is attentive to just things as simple as that. I'm thankful, too, for the role that he has in his family as shepherd and husband and father. Lord, we pray for your glory um, to be on display through your restoration of this man to health. Thankful for the good care that he's receiving in Sulphur Springs and um, pray that you would give us insight into how we can minister and come alongside. Um, And again, we're thankful. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I uh, grew up in church. My earliest memories were of church attendance. We grew up in Alexandria, Louisiana, but went to church in Pineville, which was a sister city. And we, in fact, lived on the other side of Alexandria from Pineville. So we had to drive through Alexandria, through, on into Pineville to go to school in really a different town. And we did this Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night faithfully every week that I can remember unless somebody was bleeding and it wouldn't stop, like that kind of bleeding, like um, medical necessity type issue. And I remember growing up in that context that you just, since you, you grow up in it, you may never ask the question, well, what are we doing here? But I, I've always kind of had that bent personally, but what even is this thing? And I remember in college, I began to ask that question. And the result for me was in college, unless I was home, I didn't go to church. I was in college at, at A&M. I was in the cadet corps, had lots of activities. And church was just another activity for me in college, frankly. Because I grew up and I just did it and I never knew why. It was easy to leave something because I didn't appreciate or understand what it is and what it was. But it wasn't long pastoring here before we began to ask ourselves the question, what are we even doing here? It wasn't a crisis of are we going to quit doing it. It's just a real honest, honest question. What are we supposed to be? Are we standing on the shoulders of other people just because we're just by default doing what our parents did? Or is there something to what we're about? Are there something that we should be doing better? Is there something we should be doing different? So we spent, in 2009, we spent, I think it must have been two months, two and a half months, asking and answering the question, what is the church? And this month, we are revisiting it. It's sort of compressed, although it really hasn't been compressed yet. I have no idea we're gonna, how we're going to finish out the month um, because we're just kind of following the same... Um, process that we did in 2009, at least uh, so far. But next week, we're going to compress some things into one Sunday, and we're going to ask for a miracle that the Lord would actually help us do that. But I think it's a really good question to ask. With no real expression, no real understanding of what the church is, it could be whatever you want it to be. If, say, Billy Bob is tired of church and tired of people, Let's say somebody hadn't said hi to him in a couple of weeks. Or say he's been gone for a few weeks and nobody called him and said, hey, we've missed you. Or let's say the pastor who was very friendly when he was going through the process of considering membership is now aloof and disconnected and talking to other people now that he's joined. And Billy Bob, not realizing he's probably talking to new potential members, takes it personally and says, you know what? I think I'm done with this thing. I think I'm going to go have church in the woods. It's deer season, after all, as of a couple weeks ago. What a great place to spend Sundays. In the stand, communing with creation, right? A doe comes out. I says, oh, Lord, you pray. Lord, what a beautiful doe you have made today. 
A buck comes out, thank you, Lord, for your provision. What a beautiful concept of having church in the woods. There's nobody to be mad at. There's nobody being offensive. There's nobody being thoughtless. There's nobody being inconsiderate. Without a view to what God says the church is, who's to say that Billy Bob's not wrong or not right? Who's to say he's wrong? Think about a couple of dudes that, young guys, I've seen this over and over again, and I was probably this guy in college. So I can relate to this guy. Disenchanted with institutions and organizations. So disenchanted with institutions and organizations that you become institutional. You are so consistent in how you're disenchanted with institutions. So you're going to have church at Starbucks. You're going to grab another buddy that loves Jesus. After all, Matthew 18 says, where two or more gathered in my name, I am there with you. So that one passage, while being absolutely true doesn't reveal the truth completely. These two guys think they're having church, but according to the rest of the Bible, you couple Christians potentially hanging out and having some coffee. Not a bad thing. But is it church? If we don't ask and answer the question, how can we engage these two renegades, these two pioneers, self-professed pioneers? I will offer this thought. There's nothing really admirable there's nothing really pioneering about bailing on the hard stuff of walking with God's people. There's nothing really brave about having church at Starbucks. What's brave is getting up every single Sunday morning and gathering with people who are sometimes inconsiderate, sometimes thoughtless, with people that will sometimes miss when you're hurting and you need somebody to help you. There's nothing brave about bailing on church and heading to the woods are heading to Starbucks? It's a good question to ask, and it's one that we need to ask, I think, for a couple of reasons. We need to ask first for the purpose of engaging Billy Bob, because Billy Bob might be our brother, like our physical brother. He might be our workmate at work, the guy that shares a cubicle or a workspace. He might be your neighbor or your friend that says, man, I'm going to have church in the woods. What about it? You have an opportunity to give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect if you've paid attention in November. You're being equipped for that. That's a good reason for us to ask and answer the question. And another good reason to ask and answer the question is so that you can recognize the lies, not if they happen to you, when they happen to you. Because I promise you, if you go spend any time following Christ, Satan is going to come after you and whisper lies to you. You don't need those old people. You don't need to hear that dude talk for an hour. <laughs> you could do an abbreviated version. There are guys, after all, that you could pull up online, or you can read your Bible. You don't need any of those old things. I promise you, Satan will lie to you about those things. When life gets hard walking with a people, that will be a very appealing lie, and it's one that will come in really quietly, really carefully, Satan has our number, and he knows how to lie to us. So it's an important question to ask. We're being equipped so we can engage others and be equipped so we can recognize the lies. The first Sunday in November, we asked the question and came up, first of all, with the first part of a definition that the church is a people. The church is not an activity, although there are things that church people do. There are things that we are going to be about as a people. It's not an activity or a place that you go. It's not a building. 
The church instead is an identity. It's not an activity. It's an identity. When you see church as identity, it will change a lot of things. Secondly, last Sunday, we considered the church as an accountable people. We are, in fact, contrary to what the world says, we are our brother's keepers, not as meddlers, but as people that care about one another. When one falls down, there's another one there to help them up. We are our brother's keeper, and the motive for being about this work of caring for our brother is the beauty of the bride. Any other motive is wrong, but that motive is pure and that motive is good. The beauty and readiness of the bride for Christ's return. For if we're not about the work of good, humble speck removal and log removal, then the bride might be homely and embarrassing when he comes back. We have, a little bitty, little, we have a little window of stewardship where we can influence the beauty and readiness of the bride for when Christ comes back. Man, that's a good motive. That motive will compel you to step off into the hard and humble work of log and speck removal. I enjoyed Matthew 7 last week seeing that it is a holy work. It's not one for us to be embarrassed about. It is a holy work. Our Lord considers it pearls. What a beautiful work of holding each other accountable. This morning we're going to consider the third part of this definition we're building is that the church is led and leadable. So the church is an accountable people who are led and leadable. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm going to share a few passages with you from John, as you're turning to 14, I'm going to share, I'm going to read a couple that are earlier in the book of John, and I want you to just start to kind of stow these passages away and the little messages that come along with them, and I'm going to prepare you or sort of condition you what to listen for. These are things having to do with the nature of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the nature and relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, as you're ready there in John 14, listen to a couple of passages earlier in the book of John. John chapter 4, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay, here's the next passage. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now we're in John chapter 14. Look at verse 31. I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Okay, there are these things that we've gotten a little flavor of if you've been paying attention to those passages before. Jesus is referring to specifically his relationship between he and the Father. And some things have come out just out of those few passages that the Son has been sent and the Son goes. That the Father commands and the Son obeys. There's this relationship between Father and Son that I want you to start to pay attention to. Now listen to this next passage in verse 28 of the same chapter. Verse, chapter 14, verse 20. I'm going to start in 20, 26. 
The helper, no, I'm going to save that one, actually. Look at verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If you've been paying attention so far, these other passages that we've looked at contribute to what appears to be a relationship between Father and Son where the Father is greater than the Son. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I'm going to read it to you. You can turn there if you're super fast, but listen. It says, Though being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what that looks like, these passages we've read in John. The Father sends me, I go. The Father speaks and, and commands, I obey. The Father is greater than I. That's what's reflected there in Philippians' passage. A difference in what appears to be subordinate-type relationship between father and son. Now look at verse 26. We're going to introduce the Holy Spirit into the equation. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Father will send him in Jesus' name. Now, I want you guys to sort of capture all these little moving parts here. What I want you to see is that while these persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are completely equal, they are serving in different capacities as they display something called functional subordination. What I want you to see in the Trinity is this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they are equal in being. Jesus is no less God than the Father. The Holy Spirit is no less God than, the Holy, than, than Jesus or the Father. All three persons are fully God. They're not one-third God. The Holy Spirit isn't one-eighth God, and Jesus and the Father make up the other seventh-eighth. They are fully God, each of them. They are equal in being, but there is functional subordination going on within the Trinity. Now, you might be like, man... That's really nifty. I didn't know that. You know, <laughs> I came in this morning. I wasn't really thinking about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's kind of cool to see that, you know, the Father sends, the Son goes, the Father commands, the Son obeys. Uh, Father's going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to do some work in Jesus' name. It's kind of cool and nifty. It's more than nifty. Turn a few chapters later to John chapter 17. I'm going to help this. I'm going to help you see how this beautifully this comes together. Let me set the stage for you in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer. And it's one of my favorite chapters in our Bible. It's one that we as a church spend a lot of time in. And we were introduced to this concept called perichoresis. As a church, we fell in love with this concept of perichoresis. The perichoresis is an ancient description of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we're not talking functional subordination anymore. We're talking about this interpenetration, interinvolvement, interconnectedness between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our early church fathers call it perichoresis. Peri means about, and choresis is where you get the word choreography. It's a word that the early church called the dance of God, this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where usually it's blurry. You can't see who's really working, but then every now and again you get a distinct glimpse of distinct persons of the Trinity, like at creation. The Father speaks. According to Hebrews 1, the Son goes into action, creating, and it says the Holy Spirit is there hovering over the waters. A little distinct glimpse, like a snapshot of the blur. Another snapshot of the blur where you see the distinct persons is at the baptism. 
Jesus is baptized. The Father speaks. The Holy, Holy Spirit descends like a dove. A little snapshot where you see distinct persons, but usually it's interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnecting. And that's what's going on in John chapter 17. Jesus is throughout the chapter praying to the Father, saying, I love how we're interpenetrating, interinvolved as a Trinity. And then listen to what he says in verse 20. He's praying for his disciples who are there with him, and then he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. He's praying for us 2,000 years ago, right here, a very personal moment. And here's what he prays. I'm praying, Lord, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that, we, that, that they will be paracretic, blurry, as I am interpenetrating within you and you in me as we are blurry, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see how important it is for the church to be blurry and perichoretic so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, why did I go to all that effort to introduce you to new words and new concepts and this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because what is being prayed for right here is Jesus is saying, I'm thankful that I am in you and you are in me and that we are one. You could include the Holy Spirit, that we are one, three in one. I'm praying here that your people will be like we are. I'm praying your people will reflect our character as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three in one. I'm praying that your, your people, that our people will be perichoretic as we are perichoretic. I'm praying that they will be one as we are one. And I'm going to introduce the concept that we're considering this morning. I'm praying that they will be equal in being, yet that they will allow for, and in fact, celebrate functional subordination within their people. Man, I want you to, this may be a completely new concept for you to consider, that you as a Christian and we as the church are to reflect the character of God to Greenville, to your neighbor, to your workplace. They should be able to look at how we move and see what God looks like. Consider yourselves, maybe for the first time, as a family and as a church family, as image bearers. We are to reflect the nature of of God. And the nature of God is equal in being, yet with functional subordination. Equal in being with functional subordination. The family is a neat picture of this. I'm thankful he's given us something just very familiar, very available. Most of us have a family or are part of a family, and you can think for a few minutes and consider how family might reflect this relationship of being equal in being yet functionally subordinate. Just a few weeks ago, Brad was preaching from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, say this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. A beautiful picture of equality in being, yet functional subordination, according to this passage that we believe is true. The husband is the head of the wife, and she is functionally subordinate to him, yet she is equal in being. 
Have you ever considered, ladies, for a moment, when you submit to the leadership of your frail, feeble human husband, you are being an image bearer to your children and to your neighborhood and to your workmates of what God looks like? Equal in being, yet functionally subordinate. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful concept for your marriage. What a beautiful motive. What a beautiful reason for following a frail, feeble knucklehead called your husband, who's probably hard to lead, or excuse me, hard to follow because he's not the perfect leader. And what a beautiful concept. What a great reason. And what a tragedy when you don't follow him. You don't show your neighbor. You don't show your kids. You don't show your family. You don't show your extended family. You don't show your community what God looks like. You show them what worldliness looks like. Man, the woman is of no less value than the man. They just serve in different roles, functionally subordinate. And the same is true in the church. We are equals, every one of us, saved by grace on level ground at the foot of the cross, but functionally, there are different roles within the church because the church, like the family, are image bearers of God. We are to reflect the nature of the Trinity in that we are equal in being from the nursery to the pulpit, yet serving in different roles, including leading and following we're going to consider it briefly what that looks like in the church. I'm going to send out an email later this week. I took a big chunk of this sermon, and I'm going to put it in email form, so you'll be glad. It's still a hearty sermon, but um, it's not quite as, as hearty as it was in 2009. We're going to go virtual for a little bit of this. What I want you to see and enjoy and appreciate is that leadership is one of the marks of church because church reflects the character of God. A leaderless church isn't church. Two dudes hanging out at Starbucks isn't and doesn't constitute biblically the church. A leaderless church is nonsensical because we're not reflecting the Godhead. Now here's the rub. The rub is that the church is made up of people. Here's some things we're going to consider about the nature of Israel. The nature of Israel is a great reference point for us to understand the human problem. From the beginning, we're going to start pre-Israel, but we're going to land in Israel in a moment. But at the very beginning, the beginning pages of this Bible have to do with rebellion against leadership. Eve rebels against husband and eats from the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat from. And then man and woman rebel against God's leadership and are evicted from the garden as a result. And then as a consequence of the fall, there's rebellion built into the marital relationship as a consequence of the fall. It's not ideal. This wasn't the plan or it wasn't the way things were made. It's the way that it's the outcome of the fall. It's part of the fall. Here's how it reads. For the lady, for the wife, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing except for epidurals. We've got a beautiful gift that I really encourage. Uh, what a wonderful experience child delivery is with epidurals. But without them, it's very painful what I hear from what, I, what I've heard. In pain, you shall bring forth children, right? But here's the funny part. Your desire shall be for your husband. 
Now, guys read that probably for 2,000 years and go, yeah, that's pretty awesome, but that's not the kind of desire that we're talking about here. Because next it says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What's being addressed there is the reality that woman, apart from, being, apart from some sort of transformation, is going to have a natural bent toward fixing her dude. Her desire will be to fix her husband, to nag at her husband, to control her husband because she doesn't want to be led. And adding to the problem, the husband will rule over her. <laughs> he overcorrects, I guess, the only way to respond to a woman that's hard to lead, let me just rule you then. It's built into the fall. That's the fallen marriage. It's not the redeemed marriage. It's not supposed to be us. But you can see right from the outset, the human problem is rebellion, and it's even a part of a result of the fall. And by the time of, well, we can't skip Cain. Cain rebels against God's leadership and says, what? I don't know where my brother is. What am I, my brother's keeper? And then we can think about the time of Noah. By the time of Noah, all mankind is rebelling against God. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's the human story. And then there's Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves, not for our leader, not for God. Let's make a name for ourselves. And then there's Lot rebelling against Abraham's leadership. There's Sodom rebelling against Lot's and the heavenly visitor's leadership. There's Jacob rebelling against his father's leadership by deceiving Isaac. And then there's Jacob's sons rebelling against his leadership by beating Joseph up and selling him into slavery. It's a human story. Man, start to finish. The story of man is a story of rebellion and resistance to God's leadership with a few shining moments of obedience here and there. You would think that 400 years of slavery would affect the, the heart of the Israelites. 400 years of slavery didn't change their hearts or bring them to a place of following ably. Here's the story of the Exodus in a few little passages. I have them written down on a separate sheet of paper so we don't have to turn there. We can just kind of capture what's going on here. Here's what the Lord says about the nation of Israel in chapter 2, verse 39 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. The people hard to lead. I've seen them. A few verses later in the next chapter, chapter 33, verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. A couple verses later, the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, in case they hadn't heard it yet, you are a stiff-necked people. They're just representative of the human story. Moses gets it in chapter 34, verse 9. Moses says, if now I have found favor in your sight, this is after God reveals himself to Moses, stuffs him in the cleft of the rock so he's not consumed by his holiness. He reveals his name to Moses. After all that, Moses says, If now I've found favor, if I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it sure enough is a stiff-necked people. <laughs> I, can't, I can't disagree with you, Father, because it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance anyway. What a bold prayer. <laughs> what an intercession right there. Because this is a stiff-necked, unleadable 
people. Well, the wilderness experience didn't do anything to help that problem. Forty years later, the theme of Judges is that everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Sound like an environment where there's good leadership and following going on? Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. 700 years later, here's what Hezekiah says. One of the kings, one of the few relatively good kings says, do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were. This is 700 years later. Okay, just taking hundreds of years. This is still an issue. Don't be stiff-necked like your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God. This is an appeal to not be like your forefathers, resistant to God's leadership. Instead, yield and come and serve. Well, apparently they weren't too good at it because they still landed themselves in Babylon. It's Israel's story. It's the human story. Fast forward 700 years. Another 700 years. Stephen is standing before a crowd of people with rocks. Paul's standing there holding the cloaks of the guys with rocks. And Stephen is addressing the crowd here 700 years later, 1,400 years after the Exodus, 1,500 years or so after the Exodus, Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist, you could say the leadership, we could insert that because that's what he's talking about, the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. It is the story of Israel, and it is the human story. Rebellious, obstinate, hard-headed, perpetually and terminally critical and grumbling and hard to lead. That's the story of Israel, and it's a micro story, a micro version of the human story. It reveals the heart of man and proves that the natural man without some drastic change, has an aversion to being led. Without some drastic change, being a key phrase. Without some drastic change, the natural man, and apparently even in the nation of Israel here, is rebellious and resistant and obstinate and hard-headed and hard to lead. We're going to take a closer look at a couple of passages. Turn to... Um, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Throughout the book of Numbers, Numbers is the account of the wilderness wandering. We're going to just take sort of a micro look, just a close-in view here of the leadership problem. And we're going to tease out a couple of things that may illuminate our leadership issues from this story we're going to focus primarily on chapter 16. But there's a couple of things I want to show you just because they're just so, they're just lobs. They're just right here. The first one's in Numbers chapter 12. Okay, the context, let me tell you for Numbers, sort of the, the theme. If, if you had like a music, like movies that have music running behind the whole thing, if the music back behind the whole wilderness wandering, if it was music, it would be a song that would have words that would have something just to do with grumbling. Because that's all they're doing for the 40 years is just grumbling and complaining and quarreling. And it's throughout the Exodus and throughout the Numbers account, quarreling and grumbling and complaining. So that's context. And here we are in chapter 12. 
Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now that's a pretty good sign that there was an editor, you know, to the book of Numbers. Moses supposedly wrote the book of Numbers. I'm just saying that him writing that I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth would disqualify him from being the most humble man on the face of the earth. But it's pretty interesting if you think about what's going on here. Here's sister and brother rebelling against Moses' leadership, and they're not rebelling against some dude that's hard to follow. They're not rebelling against a guy that's a poor leader. They're rebelling against a guy that's the most humble leader on the face of the earth. When you take it in, man, you realize that rebellion isn't about the leader. It's about the heart of the follower. Wives, rebellion isn't about better having a better husband. It's about your heart. Church, it's not about having a better pastor or better pastors that'll just, now I can't wait to follow now. It's a heart issue. Rebellion is a heart issue in the follower. Here's a beautiful example of the best leader this world has ever known. And his own sister and brother say, we don't need him. We can hear from God and speak God's word just, with the, just as good as he can. Let's dispense with him. A couple chapters later in chapter 14, let's see what happens. They send out spies in chapter 13 into the promised land. This is the beginning of the wandering experience. They send out the spies. The spies come back with a false report, all except for Caleb and Joshua. You may be familiar with the story. You know, the, that's why so many kids are named Caleb and Joshua, manly Good, those are good names if your kids are named Caleb and Joshua. The other spies were pansies. They came back with a report of big, big giants, you know. We like grasshoppers. You're going to kill us. Well, here's what goes down in chapter 14 after that report. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Ooh. And all the people of Israel grumbled. That's what it sounded like, too, just like that. And all the people of Israel grumbled, there it is again, against Moses and Aaron. Let's grumble against the leadership because that's what we do, right? Because we're Israel, because we're human is really what's going on. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Yeah, that would have been better. That's, that would have been better. We should have done that. Or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our wee ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? What? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It shouldn't say leader there. It should say escort because that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for a leader. They're looking for an escort to lead them in a direction where they want to go anyway, back into slavery. Let's look for an escort. Now look at chapter 16. As you're turning to chapter 16, I'm going to set the stage for you a little bit. This is where we're going to spend just a few minutes. I'm going to read a large section of this chapter because it's such a beautiful example of the human problem and of leadership. What's going on is background, sort of context for what I'm convinced is part of this chapter. In Exodus chapter 31, God tells the nation of Israel, 
Don't profane the Sabbath. I'm setting up the the Sabbath as a holy day, a day set apart. Don't profane the Sabbath. You're holy people. Don't profane it. And he specifically, he says, don't profane it with work. And there's even some definitions of what does work mean over there. Don't profane it with work. Now listen what's happening. Before we read chapter 16, listen in the chapter in front of it. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 27. If one person sends... Un- no, I'm going to start in verse 32. Yeah, sorry. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Oh, I mean, you can look at that. Let's just look at that like a human being. He might have been cold. It might have been a cold day. And he's like, I'm going to go get some sticks. I'm going to make a little fire. And I'm going to warm up, toast some marshmallows, make some s'mores. But he's doing it on the Sabbath. He could have done that a day before or the day before that or whatever. I mean, we don't know the context. All we know is what's happening there. They find a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody. Because it had been made clear what, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him, which is really pretty funny because it was made pretty clear over there at Exodus. I mean, amply clear. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded. Now, you might hear that and you go, golly, that's pretty strong. I mean, what in the world is going on there? Just enjoy for a moment, before we really continue with context, enjoy that this is a picture of what our lot is apart from Christ bearing the stones that we're due for being Sabbath breakers. These are just graphic images. God wasn't in a bad mood over here and somehow in a good mood over here in the the Gospels. He was in the same mood because he's the same yesterday, today, and always. He's just as holy over here as he is over there. And this is Christ. This is a picture of what our lot is. This is a picture of what Christ has done for us, being taken outside the camp and bearing our reproach. So don't look at a story like this and go, oh, I can't, I don't like that God. It's the same God we worship now because Christ bore our stones outside the camp. Now, setting the stage for chapter 16. What happens right after this is that Moses, the Lord says to Moses, tell everybody to put tassels in their garments. Doesn't sound like a very big deal. I really don't think it is, unless somebody was just like really obstinate, like they wanted to wear canvas, you know, Carhartt, you know, put some tassels on there. No, I don't want to put that, I don't want to wear Carhartt. I mean, right, tassels doesn't sound like a big deal. But then chapter 16 begins with, now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, Dathan and, uh, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son, on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, because rebellion loves company. Rebellion doesn't like to do it by itself. Rebellious people like to gather a bunch of a host of other rebels. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. And you know that those chiefs had people behind them. This is a serious uprising. And this 250 chiefs are chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. I don't think they're mad about the tassels. I think they're mad about homeboy getting stoned for picking up some sticks. These people aren't any less human over here than we are now. (laughs) Look at that and just 
Consider that for a minute. Wouldn't, wouldn't you maybe have the potential to go, come on, Moses? He's picking up some kindling, and you're gonna, we're going to stone him? I mean, surely, gee, I mean, surely God doesn't, didn't mean that to happen. I mean, he was just kind of being a, I don't know. I don't know what the word would be, but he surely he didn't want that to execute the guy. Isn't that a little over the top? You have gone too far. I'm convinced that's the context here. Korah raises up a rebellion of all these people, 250 chiefs, and all the people that go with those chiefs, a huge uprising. He says, you, Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Why are you trying to lead us? Summary. Why are you trying to... Korah was a Levite. So he had a leadership role as it is, and he's looking around the whole congregation saying, man, we should all be leaders, or none of us should be leaders. Maybe if you want to kind of summarize what Korah is up to, I don't like leadership. I have an aversion to it is what he's thinking apparently, or he doesn't even have a concept of it. That's the way it's playing out. When Moses heard this, though, he fell on his face. He said to Korah and all his company, he just saw what happened to Miriam. She had leprosy as a result of rebelling against God's leadership. And he fell on his face, and I, just the fact that he fell on his face. There's prayer going on, there's intercession going on, but there's also confrontation. I mean, he's holding this guy accountable. He says, in the morning, the Lord will show who's, who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, Korah. Take censers, Korah, and all your company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. I mean, Moses is holding them accountable. The most humble man on the face of the earth is holding them accountable right here because they're rebelling against God's leadership. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the, God of, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he's brought you near to him, and that all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? See, you could be a Levite and not be a priest, but all the priests were Levites. Apparently, Korah... Felt like everybody should be priests. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Moses, humility. He didn't even mention himself in there. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and he said to them, We will not, oh, Eliab and Dathan said, We will not come up. Is, it is, a, is it a small thing that you have brought us out of, up out of the land flowing with milk and, and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? You've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Now they're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey. That's what this uprising has become. A bunch of respected folk... And now they're pining for Egypt, and they're calling Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey. And now you're going to make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up stiff-necked. 
And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them and have not harmed one of them. Let's see what goes down this next day. So Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. Here's what's going to go down. And, they, and, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This is the next day. You could just imagine this moment tumbleweeds start rolling by and you hear in the background that's what's about to happen here it's like a showdown at the okay corral between Moses and Korah the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment here's intercession and they fell on their faces and said oh God the God of the spirits of all flesh shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation and the Lord spoke to, spoke to Moses saying say to the congregation get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram you better get away from their tents because something's about to go down Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Tumbleweed comes rolling by. And Moses says, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die like of old age, he's implying, are natural causes. Or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, something you hadn't really thought of, you know, just kind of like this crazy, did you just see what happened moment? The, the, and, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down and live into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Yeah, that would be new. The ground swallows up Corvettes. You may hear about that thing happening too long, not too long ago. Imagine the ground swallowing up these fans. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, some of you know, read the news. You should read the news. It's a bad deal when Corvettes get swallowed up by the earth. So as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, and then... You can just almost hear the burp in that moment. I mean, just imagine the rest of the nation of Israel going, did you just see what would happen? Okay, they didn't die of old age. They didn't die of natural causes. And yes, indeed, something new happened. happened. The earth swallowed them up. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry and said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. You know, I'm reading this story and I'm like, man, if I was, you know, Jacob the Israelite and I wasn't caught up with Korah and his rebellion, Dathan and Abiram, if I wasn't somehow caught up in that, you know, with the chiefs of all the 250 chiefs, if somehow I had um, not been duped into that rebellion against God's leadership and I saw that go down, I just can't imagine I wouldn't be changed forevermore. 
Anybody else agree with that? I mean, can we, I mean, hopefully we'd all be going like, man, I would never come up against God's leadership ever again. Well, I wish that was the case. In verse 41 of the same chapter. In case you have some hope for Israel or some hope for the human heart, let's just read verse 41. But on the next day, okay, not like a decade later when, you know, there was like a, a park there, you know, where they'd been swallowed up, but it was just real fertile because all those people died under there. And it, you know, it was this beautiful park with, with springs and you know, fountains, you know. Man, the next day, the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. You know, Moses, I'd be like, I didn't kill anybody. Did you see? I thought y'all noticed that God did that. I didn't do that. They blamed Moses the very next day. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. What a heartbreaking story. These guys, think about it, they saw the events of the Exodus. They saw the plagues. This is the beginning of the wilderness experience for the most part. It's kind of toward the front end. They saw the plagues. They, saw, they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. If you're thinking, if something profound will happen to me, then I will begin to follow. These guys are proof that something really drastic has to happen. And we'll talk about what that drastic thing is later. But that hasn't happened here. And they're just revealing that humankind doesn't like to be led. They saw the events of the Exodus. And here they are rebelling against the most humble man on the face of the earth. Rebellion against leadership isn't about the leader. It is about the heart of the follower. Man, the account of Korah and his crew and the fallout is a sad visual aid of the natural heart of man. He or she does not like to be led. If you think that you're somehow wired differently, like, well, you know, this is how God made me. I'm just, like, just really hard to lead. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing novel about you. You're human. You're a lot like Israel. The natural man wants equality in being and functional equality. Period. I want both. Man, I know some of you might be thinking, just convinced, you know, if I can follow a leader that's easy to lead, I can follow a good leader, just keep in mind that Israel was following the most humble, most God-led man in history, apart from our Savior, and they weren't following him well. They were stiff-necked because they needed a drastic change, and thankfully the church has had that drastic change. That's what I love about the church. Even on the worst day that I've ever seen in the church, and I haven't been a front row seat to a lot of church conflict, honestly. The Lord has protected me as I'm growing up over the years from a lot of the heartache that I've heard about from other people. But even on our worst day, the church doesn't look like this because the drastic change has happened to the church. 
Man, there's something to love about the church. Is the drastic change has happened to us because we have a better hope. We have a better covenant and a guarantor that's better of a better covenant. We have better promises. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better possession. We have a better life. We, better ha- we have a better high priest and a better salvation. And we have the Holy Spirit not traveling with us like he did with the nation of Israel, but traveling in us, indwelling the people of God. Man, what a profound, beautiful thing. You might be thinking that I can follow if, the, if a drastic... If, if he's a really good leader, if he's really easy to follow, it takes a drastic change in your heart. And you may consider that if you have a difficult time following people, that that drastic thing needs to be something that you need to connect to. That may be something you need to grab and apprehend, that God has transformed your heart to be different from the world. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And as you're walking with the Holy Spirit, self-control is supposed to be stronger than those tendencies that you may never shake. We'll talk about that more later. In my experience, I should say and emphasize that people love leadership as long as they are being led in the direction that they already want to go, and that's not leadership. That's not leadership. That's an escort. That's an escort. The natural man, I'm convinced... Doesn't want to be led, and I'm convinced is like a cat. We have two cats now. We have a new cat as of a few days ago, a little kitten that just this morning, in fact, the last few mornings as I'm getting up early because he's in there meowing to death, like meowing me to death. As you call him, and he just looks at me like, I'm going to come when it's my idea. Now, I know there are some serious cat lovers in here, and some cat lovers in here that I don't, I don't want to take a beating from you because I'm not anti I'm kind of anti-cat, but not absolutely anti-cat. In fact, I'm taking care of this little kitten. But I'm just going to tell you, when I call a cat, he doesn't come to me. And if it's just me, don't tell me because I'm not sure I can live with that. If your cat comes to you, then just, that's great. Just don't tell me. Because as far as I can read the, the circumstances, cats come when it's their idea. Like I call our older cat and he kind of looks at me like, Huh? Can't you see I'm comfortable? And if he starts heading my way and I call him like, oh, good boy, good, good job, Smokey, come here. And then he might even turn just to show me. I, it was my idea. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> if a cat, it amazes me that their facial expression does not change. Yet so clearly they're saying to me, you're not the boss of me. That is humankind apart from a drastic change. We have to have the Holy Spirit do a profound work in us that I'm convinced he's done in the church corporately. He may not have done it in you yet to make us be more like a dog. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm taking that illustration. I'm not calling us dogs, but you know how dogs are, man, eager to please, obedient, attentive, watching their master. That's the way the church should be. The church is to be a people who reflect the character of God with equality in being, yet functionally, there are subordinate relationships. And we've had this. We have to have this taking place among us because this drastic change has taken place, to our, taken place in our hearts. The church is to be led by elders first. Turn to Acts chapter 14. We're, gonna, we're almost done this morning, so you guys have been very attentive. I want to give you kind of a sense 
a heads up that you're close. I know that the stories are sort of take a little while to develop. This is where we're landing the plane here in these next few minutes. The church is to be led and leadable. The church is to be different. And the church is to be led by elders. As you're turning to Acts chapter 14, I'm going to share a passage with you from Ephesians. Um, it may be familiar to you. It's uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It was common when a victor, a warrior, a general, or a king defeated the enemy that they would leave their, lead their captives on a, a parade around town, and they would give gifts to their people and view Jesus as the victor, leading a procession of um, in his victory, a victory parade and giving gifts to men. Well, here's the gift that he's giving his people. The gifts, I should say. Listen to what it says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, or shepherds, it says in the newer ESV, and teacher. He gave teachers and shepherds. And in fact, and it might have a little note at the bottom of your page that puts those together, the pastor-teacher. Or the shepherd teacher. That's one person. And Paul uses that phrase or that, that reference or that um, person. He uses different terms interchangeably for that person contextually. It might be pastor. It might be shepherd. It might be overseer. It might be bishop. It might be what we use here, elder. He uses that throughout his letters as folks that are leading the church. And in fact, gifts given to the church a gift of leadership to the church. Now let's look at this passage in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. This is a team of church planters. Okay, Just for a moment, consider Paul and Barnabas. They're out planting churches. And look what happens next. They return to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch, places where they have preached, places where they've done what they just did above. They made many disciples. And in verse 22, he's going back to these many disciples that he made, they made, and they're strengthening the souls of the disciples. It's pretty cool, strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue plotting. That plotting is my word in the faith because it's a plot. I love that he's concurred. Don't quit. It's the same message of Hebrews. Don't bail. Keep plotting. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, preparing them for the reality that it's not going to be easy following Jesus. There's going to be times, in fact, when it might be really hard. It might make a mess of things, if you read that email I sent this week. And then he says, then it says this. And when they had appointed elders for them... Here, pastor, teacher, here, bishop, um, um, I forget what the other, overseer, for them in every church, plural, elders in every church, a great case for plural leadership, plural pastors in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, These guys, just think about this for a moment. Appointing elders in the church being part of missionary work. Folks think of missionary work as, man, you're going abroad and you're just converting some folks. That's the first part of it. You're sharing the gospel, you're sowing seed, and hopefully God is opening the eyes of people's hearts and he's um, circumcising the heart 
And by faith, they're believing on Christ. Well, here's the next part of that missionary work. Right behind strengthening, encouraging, and preparing them for tribulation is let's put some elders in place. Those gifts given to the church because they need leadership. Let's put some elders in place in every church. They're strengthening souls, encouraging them, preparing them for tribulation, and they're appointing leadership as missionary work. There's no mention here. I mean, I'm looking really close. I'm like, like really, really close in there, and I don't see anything in there about building buildings. Um, you know, like helping them set up a budget. Nothing wrong with a budget, mind you. Jeff, appreciate the budget. Appreciate working on it. You got to set up a budget. You got to get a good bulletin. You better get a worship leader. I'm looking. It's not in here. I'm thankful for worship leading. It's a good thing. I'm looking for all kind of stuff in there. No mention of a building. No steeple. There's no playground to draw in the neighbors when they see you. Look at that playground. I got to join that church because I want my kids to play on that playground. That never won any. I never brought anybody to church. You go to McDonald's for that. We can't compete with McDonald's playground. It's put elders in place. Huh. It's not real impressive. Well, it's his design, leadership. They appointed leadership, and it's leadership that goes with the newly planted church. And then what's cool in the next verse, verse 24, they passed, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. What's cool about that is after they appointed elders, then they left. They left. They went on to a place that's hard to pronounce, Pamphylia and Pisidia. But they left. Think about it like this. What Paul and Barnabas were doing, think about it like this. If, if you found a community where people were starving to death and you showed up with a truckload of burgers, that's pretty cool. I mean, people would be thankful for those burgers. I bet they'd gobble them up. But then they're hungry again. But consider instead, if you showed up to a neighborhood or a community that had no food and they're starving to death, and you, what might be perceived as uncaring and unthoughtful and unhelpful, go find a good plot of ground. And in that good plot of ground, you start cultivating that soil and you start putting some good seed in that ground and you start watering it. And then you stick around long enough to look for some shoots to come up. And then you look around for some locals to come tend to that garden. To come water that garden. To come guard that garden from all the wild animals and rabbits and stuff that want to come eat those shoots or wolves that want to creep in and ravage the garden. Think of that's what he's doing. He's pointing elders to guard the garden, to tend, to watch, to keep out who shouldn't be in there, but to tend to what's in there, to lead He's going to look for some burdened people who will continue the work so that the community is fed with more good seed. Man, that's a holistic approach to missionary work right there. Let's plant a garden instead of bringing a burger. Thankful for the burger plan, but garden's so much better. And tending to that garden is elder leadership. A couple more passages, three more passages to turn to, and very briefly, turn to Timothy Chapter 1, 1 Timothy, chapter 3, actually. And these are very, going to be very brief, so you, you can hang. You can do it. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, Brad preached from this recently, so it should be a little bit familiar when we were appointing some new deacons. 
First Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses. Okay, let me give you a little context. Paul's writing a letter to a church planter, a, a, a pastor teacher, an evangelist. He's, it appears that he's sort of a combination of those things, Timothy. He's, he's an evangelist, but he's also a pastor teacher and church planter. And he's writing a letter to him, and he gives, him, he gives a lot of airtime to the overseer. This is the elder. This is the pastor. Remember, you're using those terms interchangeably. The gift given to men. Here's the qualifications, the first seven verses. And then verses 8 through 13 are qualifications for deacons, the other leaders in the church. It's not just elders, but they're leading beside, yoked to deacons. And here's the qualifications for that. And here's the beautiful thing that comes right after that in verse 14 of chapter 3. He gives all this airtime. Here's who you want to be appointing as elder. Here's who you want to be appointing as deacon. And when you appoint those jokers, here's what's going to happen. In some of these, just, just you know, think back to some of these places we just read about. Where they, where they go leave. Before they leave, they're putting this in place. At least the elder part of it. And here's the cool thing that's going to happen. Look over in verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Without elder leadership, and apparently deacon leadership as well, y'all don't even know how to act. I mean, really, that's what he's saying? Put some elders and deacons in place so you'll know how to behave in the household of God. And it's not just so we'll be a bunch of clean nose and parted hair, you know, people, all acting respectable. But here's why. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You put leadership in place, and then not only are people going to know how to behave, but the church is going to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. What a beautiful thing. Put leadership in place, and then the community can see. Where's the truth? Let me, let me listen for it. Let me look for it. Oh, it's right over there. There's leadership in place, and then there's otherworldly environment where people are actually leading, not just escorting, but leading, and then people are eagerly following. What a unique place. The pillar and buttress of the truth. The second of three that I was going to share with you is in the next, just a couple pages over. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Another letter to another pastor, teacher, church planter. Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Okay, Titus might be thinking, well, how am I going to do that? Well, here's how he's going to do that. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Put what remained into order in Crete by appointing elders in every town as I directed you. Appointing leadership in those places so that they can lead and people know how to act. And those little churches that we have planted together or that you have planted will be the pillars and buttresses of the truth in those little communities. Man... What a beautiful thing. I, all of it, man, so many people in our room, in this room, do missionary work from one time or another. Maybe it's through a school, school event or school something. 
I want to help you just for a moment differentiate between ministry work and missionary work. Ministry work is going to help build a building somewhere, going to help build an orphanage somewhere. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. It's a wonderful thing. But missionary work is taking the church, complete with her leadership, where it isn't. Man, let's, let's let missionary work come into focus for this church, where we understand what it is. And an essential part of missionary work is putting things in order by putting leadership in place. Elders and deacons. Because the church is to be led. The church is to be led. And the last thing, last thing we're going to end with is in Hebrews chapter 13. It's so brief because we've just served it up by this point. Hebrews chapter 13, <clears throat> verse 17. The church is to be leadable. Obey your leaders. You could insert in there. I mean, he's writing to a church. He's not talking to um, people dealing with, you know, be, be good, you know, be submissive to your boss. That, that would be smart. But he's not talking about, you know, submitting to the fire chief, you know, or the, the boss of your team at L3. That's, that's wise. He's talking about church leadership here. He's writing to a church. And he says, obey your leaders and submit to them because here's why. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I don't know how that hits you, but it hits me like a wallop. Does it hit you, Brad? Jeff? Morris? Other deacons? Like a wallop. As people who have to give an account for you and your souls. He continues on. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. What I want you to see here is that the church is to be leadable. Consider for a moment how unjust of a God would we have if he were to hold me accountable, yet I had no sway and no responsibility and even no control over this church. Would that be fair? Would you like that God that's going to hold me accountable for something that I never really even had control over? Leadership is to lead, and the church is to be leadable. Leaders will have to give an account for their people, and you can't be held responsible for something over which you had no control. Man. One of the things that I enjoy in preaching this sermon, one of the things liberating for me, is that I'm not preaching it with some sort of overwhelming feeling that I'm having to convince you of something. And I'm having to try and sway a bunch of stiff-necked people. We're going to get it done this Sunday. That's why I'm so free in preaching to you, because I'm preaching to the choir at Crosspoint Fellowship. I've never seen such a leadable people. It's commendable. It's praiseworthy. It's lovely. And I'm thinking on these things. Right, Brad? What a remarkable people. But I know what you're made of. And I know how Satan lies because he lies to me too. I can be difficult to lead because I'm led too. I'm led by Brad and Scott. 
And I'm also led by listening to my teammates there, my deacons. I'm led by my wife in some ways. I'm listening to her. Even though there's equality in being and functional subordination there, if I'm a wise leader, I'm listening. And what a remarkable people you are. But I know what you're made of. I know how easily we can be deceived. And I know how busy the devil is. I know how he can twist things and he can convince you of things. And I also realize that as I speak corporately, as in large part, there may be some of y'all out there, you like, you ain't talking about me. <laughs> I smile at him on Sunday or smile at Brad on Sunday, Scott on Sunday, but I got no use for him. I wouldn't spit on him if they were on fire. Now, you might not. I'm just I'm imagining it might be that bad. But some of y'all might have a real hard time with this. Just like a wife might have a real hard time following her husband. I understand that. I understand that. That's why a sermon like this should be shaping for you. It should be equipping for you. It should be galvanizing for you to follow. Rebellion is not about how poor or great your leader is. Rebellion is about your heart. And that wonderful thing that we've talked about over the course of this sermon that needs to take place so that we can follow has taken place if you're trusting Christ by faith. It has taken place. Man, you're walking in a new covenant with a high priest that's just plain better. I want to encourage you. If you struggle following, know first there's nothing new under the sun. You're not unique. If you have those tendencies and you're thinking, man, it must not have taken place in me because I still feel that way. I still feel that way. But what is welling up within you as you walk with the Lord and walk with the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, one of those which is self-control. And self-control is to guide you in that. Not when you want to rebel against leadership. Not if you want to rebel against leadership, but when you want to rebel against leadership. It's going to happen unless you're just led by escorts. It's going to happen. And man, know that there's nothing new under the sun. And know, too, that it's an act of worship when you follow an act of worship, and you're putting the character of God on display. What a beautiful, beautiful reality. That's a good motive. I'm thankful that I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but I'm thankful, too, I'm having the chance to equip you for the future, maybe to give an account to Billy Bob, or maybe to share with the two dudes that are, are done with church and want to hang out at Starbucks. You can give an account for hope within with gentleness and same respect, or I may be preparing you to know what's a lie. All right, let's pray. We'll have our supper here in a moment. God, I'm thankful that we have your word. I'm thankful that we have a design here that is just perfect. I realize and I know that it's executed by imperfect people. And I'm thankful that that's your design as well. God, I pray that we will be faithful. I pray that you will continue to grow us and sustain us in an environment that reflects your character and the nature of God. We love you so much, Lord. We are so thankful for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to share a passage with you for our supper from Leviticus chapter 22. It's sort of an obscure passage, but it's a really beautiful passage. I've had in my notes and my phone for about six months, waiting for the right morning to share it. And this, I think, is that morning... Listen to this passage. If you'd like to turn there, you can. It's one of those that you probably wouldn't notice except that somebody called your attention to it. Levit- I know you all spend a lot of time in Leviticus probably, right? Everybody? 
daily devotional on Leviticus. It's a great book. I'm telling you, listen to this. Leviticus 22, verse 10. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. Now, contextually, what he's talking about when it says lay person, he's talking about a stranger. Okay, somebody who's not part of the people of God. Okay, or not, specifically in this case, not a priest. Okay, a lay person or stranger to the priesthood shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. That's why on Sundays, when we're faithful to think about this, to really prepare you, if you're not trusting Christ as Savior and Lord, this is a holy thing and it's not for you. I'm not trying to be ugly to you. It, it might make you sick if you were to take it. I mean, that's, it's not for you. It's a holy meal for God's people. Okay, So let's, let's contextualize what we're doing here. And, and on some Sunday mornings, we emphasize that. That you're invited if you're trusting Christ. But if you're not, don't take this meal. It's not for you. It's a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money. Okay, think about that for a minute. Okay, a stranger, a layperson, isn't to eat of this holy meal. But if the priest buys, purchases somehow a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of his food. What I want you to enjoy right now as we take this meal together is that we have been purchased by the priest. We are slaves that have been purchased by the high priest, in fact. And not purchased with money, as in this case, but purchased with blood so that we can take of this holy meal as his servants and slaves following his leadership, a great supper to take together on a morning where we consider leadership. Blood-bought servants enjoying a holy meal. That's what we're about to do. Let's distribute the elements. I can't imagine this doesn't have application, this sermon doesn't have an application for every single person in the room beyond what's going on in the church, that God's people are led and leadable, Wives submitting to her husbands, you know, even if, not even if, but even though he's frail and people. <laughs> and kids, too. We didn't even address that. Kids, what are you doing when you submit to your parents and follow your parents' leadership? You are equal in being. You are completely as valuable as mom and dad. There's never a value issue from the nursery to the other end of this building. <laughs> Never a value issue between any child or adult. You are equally valuable in God's eyes and in our eyes. Some might say you're more valuable. <laughs> but listen, there's a functional, there's a role of functional subordination that puts God on display. Kids, you want a reason to obey your parents? Because you're going to put God on display. You're going to show your friends and your neighbors and your extended family what the Godhead looks like. What a wonderful reason. As we take the supper this morning as blood-bought servants, commit to obey, commit to follow, commit to lead in contexts where you're called to lead gently, lovingly, not out of duty or compulsion, because you're, but because you're putting the gospel on display. I see some of y'all are doing like this. I'm like, when's he going to do it? Let's take and eat. I have a tough time stopping talking. I know we did a doozy this morning. Let's take and drink.
Do I turn? Oh, we have a video right now, right? Yeah. Y'all, pay attention to the video. Y'all noticed this week, excuse me, this month, that you won't hear anything that has to do with, with a type of music or anything that has to do with how a room is set up or what a corporate worship service should look like necessarily. You won't, well, you will the last with Lord's Supper and baptism. But for the most part, everything you're going to hear this month really as a whole travels. It travels to context like Derek were talking about. It travels to context in Kansas. Y'all going to Kansas, right? Davis and Christina, y'all come on up. This family has been with us. How long have y'all been part of us, Davis? A couple years? Yeah. Uh, they've been with us a couple years. They came from a church that uh, was more sort of a family-type church, less, I would say, less institutional maybe. That would be the best, better way to describe it, more family-driven, uh, various preachers each week. Yeah. A little bit different from what we're used to. But one of the things that I'm enjoying about um, this family is I think they were looking for the kind of things we're talking about this month, that they may come in different, you know, there could be a pulpit here and it could still be just as much church as we're talking about. We could have been singing from hymnals this morning, just as much church. We don't know what they're going to find in Kansas. You might find, you might have to wear a suit, dude. Are you going to stick out like a sore thumb? I mean, it might be that kind of church. But it could be a church that's about the main thing, that has a a grasp on what the Bible says about what church is like. And that's okay. Wear the suit, if that's the case. Sing from the hymnal. That's that's awesome. Sing true things to God about God. Back to Him and remind each other in song, through, through hymns, people singing parts and everything. That's greatness. That's the beauty of what the church can be in different sort of contexts, in different um, cultures even, and yet still be a robust church. We're going to pray for this family. This is their last Sunday here. And we're going to pray for them as they move to Kansas that God will lead them to a robust people. They might wear suits. They might sing from hymnals. They might have a pulpit. They might be more of a house church. We don't know what God has in store for y'all, but I trust that you're going to be looking for a robust people that has a grasp on what God says the church is. It's been a delight to walk with y'all. Y'all stand and let's pray for this family. Brad, you want to come up and let's put some hands on, hands on them? God, we are so thankful for the journey that we've had with this family the last couple of years. We entrust them to you. We're thankful that you are in Kansas just as much as you're here we pray in advance, or we pray for them that in advance you already have a people that you're preparing for their arrival, uh, that will connect them, connect to them, that will love them and equip them and walk with them and be the people of God with them. Uh, we just are so thankful for the journey we've had together, and we're so thankful that we have a God that um, is attentive to the details. So we entrust all of them to you. Lord, we love you. We give this week to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a good week.